Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to the East European Studies channel at New Books Network. Today, I am really happy to be talking to Dr. Kristen Godsey about her book, Second World, Second Sex, which has the subtitle Socialist Women's Activism and Global Solidarity During the Cold War. Kristen, could you please introduce yourself and then we will talk about your book. This is your most recent book, right? That's right. It just came out in February. Uh, so thank you, first of all, Marina, for having me on the show. I'm really delighted to be, you know, um, working on Eastern Europe. And I've been obviously researching Eastern Europe for a really long time. So I, my name is Kristen Godsey. I am a professor of Russian and East European studies at the University of Pennsylvania. And I graduated with my PhD from Berkeley in 2002. And after that, I spent about 15 years actually teaching at Bowdoin College up in Maine before I moved to the University of Pennsylvania in the fall of 2017. I started doing research in Eastern Europe. Well, let me back up and say I first visited Eastern Europe in the fall of 1990. So just really about six months after the Berlin Wall came down, I happened to be traveling in Europe and I spent about four months in that between sort of May and August, sort of traveling around Eastern Europe. I, my first country was Bulgaria. I, I couldn't get more than a transit visa through at the time. So I went from Istanbul to Belgrade, but I did pass through Bulgaria. I think I had a 34-hour transit visa or something like that. And then from Belgrade, I traveled to Romania and then into Hungary and what was then still Czechoslovakia and then into the GDR, what was then still the GDR. And I was actually in Berlin on Alexanderplatz the night that the currencies reunified in Eastern Germany. And so I had a really deep interest in Eastern Europe. And then I went to college and, you know, became sort of a grown up. I lived for a couple of years in Japan. And then I ended up going to graduate school at Berkeley in, I started grad school in 1996. And of course, at that time, a lot of uh, people who were interested in doing ethnographic research were going to Eastern Europe because it was sort of a no man's land in terms of, you know, ethnography and anthropology, especially there, there were some really wonderful anthropologists who were working in Eastern Europe, particularly in Romania and a few in Bulgaria as well. There wasn't as much ethnographic research as there would later be in this part of the world, obviously. And so I knew that I really wanted to do research in Eastern Europe. And I started doing ethnographic fieldwork in 1997. And I've really been doing it ever since, uh, around, primarily in Bulgaria, but more broadly, and also in the eastern part of Germany and then across the region. And I've written, this is my ninth book, but it's really my, I would say my sixth book about transition and socialism and post-socialism in Eastern Europe. So this book was a real labor of love. It took a while for me to write. And I, you know, I think it was, it's a little bit different than some of my other work because most of my other work is really ethnographic. And this work is a sort of a, a mixture of ethnography and contemporary history, because I'm also doing a lot of historical, it was the first real archival project that I've ever done. So it's it's been a bit of a challenge for me, but I'm really happy with how the book came out and I'm really excited to be talking to you about it today. Well, this is kind of a really long road um, in Eastern European studies. So I'm really privileged to have you today as well. Um, so I just, uh, I just finished reading the book and I was very impressed really with the many sources that um, that you mentioned there, like the many facts and persons that you include and it seems to be really a great great challenge to gather all the facts to make sense of all this information um so could you briefly summarize the main arguments of the book and tell us what inspired you to write this book um so what was 
your particular, like what was your interest in these particular events, in these particular dynamics, like the conference, it's the UN conferences, and why you chose to write about, okay, I get it now why it's Bulgaria, but then why Zambia? So, okay, that that's a great question. So I, when I was at Berkeley in 1996, one of my mentors was a woman called Irene Tinker. And she was a very prominent women's activist in the United States. And she was very instrumental in getting the Women in Development Office set up at the United States Agency for International Development during the UN Decade for Women. Well, just previous to the UN Decade for Women. But then she was very active during the decade in the field of women in development from the American side. And she eventually ends up She attends all three conferences during the UN Decade for Women in Mexico City, Copenhagen, and in Nairobi. And she eventually ends up as a uh, member of the board of INSTRA, which is the UN Training Institute for Women based in Santo Domingo in the Dominican Republic. And at some point in 1996, she was, we were talking about Eastern Europe, and she said to me that when she was at INSTRA, they would get all of these reports from Eastern Europe about the quality of life for women there and particularly, you know, information about maternity leaves and kindergartens and things like that. And at the time, you know, in the wake of the Cold War, she really didn't believe that it was true. She thought it was mostly propaganda. But she started to wonder and realized that she had never actually done any research and that she just sort of took it at face value because that's what the American government told her to think. So I was really inspired by this comment that she made that, you know, maybe there was something really interesting going on. And certainly those women, uh, the Eastern Bloc women who were at all these UN conferences were really, really powerful women. And so I ended up talking to a woman called Arvon Fraser, who was a co-author and a friend of Irene Tinker. And she had been a member of the official delegation of the United States to Mexico City and Copenhagen, and then was uh, at the Parallel NGO Forum in Nairobi. And she clearly said to me that nobody would have admitted it in the U.S. delegation, but it certainly did seem that women in the Eastern Bloc had a lot more legal equality than women in the United States, and in fact, indeed, in many Western countries. So that was what sort of set me on this path was to try to figure out, okay, you know, what are the stories of these women from the Eastern Bloc countries who were attend who attended these UN conferences? Because almost all the delegations from the Eastern Bloc conferences were either led by women or heavily populated by women. And when I started poking around, and I actually started this research pretty early, I think the first article that I published about this was 2004, so about 15 years ago. I could not find anything about Eastern Bloc women's participation in the UN Decade for Women. And, and that was really shocking because there were all sorts of memoirs and all sorts of books talking about Western women and to a certain extent women in the global South. But there was almost nothing that I could find about the role that East European women had played. And so in 2010, I think it was maybe 2009, 2010, the summer of 2010, Uh, before I went to Bulgaria that summer, I asked a librarian, a government documents librarian at my old institution, Bowdoin College, to see if she could track name, down the names of the delegates from Bulgaria who had been in the official delegation to the Mexico City Conference in 1975. And this was a huge undertaking. It took her actually several months and I think many librarians at Harvard and Yale and Brown to finally produce this list And then I ha once I had the list, I basically went to Bulgaria and sort of used my extant networks in Bulgaria to ask people if anybody knew who these women were, if they were still alive. And so in the summer of 2010, I found the first three women, uh, Elena Lagodinova, who had been the president of the delegation, a woman named Maria Dinkova, and another woman named Krasina Chomakova. And I was able to track them down. It wasn't easy. Uh, Chomakova, when I first met her in 2010, was already 90. Um, and I think Legadinova was 75. Anyway, the or she was maybe already 80, actually. Anyway, the, the long and short of it is that once I started doing the oral history interviews with these women, then I realized that in order, because, you know, oral history has all sorts of problems associated with it. So I started working in the archives, uh, in the Central State Archives in Sofia, in the Fond 417, which is the 
archival collection of the Committee of the Bulgarian Women's Movement. And, th- and from those documents, then I started learning about how important the Bulgarian Women's Committee had actually been in um, the, the UN Decade for Women. I had no idea. It was really rather serendipitous that I discovered this and that Bulgaria had, in fact, always had the treasurer's position in the Women's International, um, what is it, the Women's uh, WIDF, Women's International Democratic Federation, it, based in Berlin, Bulgaria was very much uh, involved in that organization, which was this umbrella organization for socialist women around the world. And it was in my work in the archive of the Committee of the Bulgarian Women's Movement that I found a whole cache of letters that had been written between Elena Lagodinova and this woman named Chibesa Kankasa. And Kankasa was the president of the United um, Independence Party of Zambia's Women's League. And so they had exchanged these letters uh, and they had exchanged delegations. And I suddenly got very curious at that point about the intersections and the connections of women in the Eastern Bloc countries and Eastern European countries and women in the developing world. And so originally when I thought about writing the book, the other two countries that seemed really uh, that I found letters from the Bulgarians to were Ethiopia. In fact, there was a very close relationship between the Ethiopian Women's Committee and the Bulgarian Women's Committee. And then also in Ghana, the Bulgarians had been really in, important in setting up a big women's movement with this woman named Nana Rawlings. Uh, and I had actually lived in Ghana uh, in 1990, when I was an undergraduate. And so I thought that this would be a kind of multi-sided project where I would do research in Zambia, Ethiopia, and in Ghana, and then as well as Bulgaria. But then as it evolved, um, I, you know, I ended up also doing interview, uh, sorry, research in the archives at the International Institute for Social History in Amsterdam. I ended up doing research in the United States with a bunch of archives here and doing oral histories with women in the United States. And then I learned that the Ethiopian archives were inaccessible and most of the women involved, the president of the revolutionary Ethiopian Women's Association had been under house arrest for many years and now was in, had political asylum in Canada and I couldn't find her and I don't think she really wanted to be found. And then it also turned out that the Ghanaian uh, records weren't going to be as accessible as I thought they were. So in the end, I narrowed it down to a kind of case study of Bulgaria and Zambia, but sort of in dialogue with the United States. That's how the whole project came together. And in the end, uh, you know, so it was a really unwieldy project. I started working on it, you know, officially started working on it in 2010, and the book just came out in 2019. So it's been a good nine-year project uh, with, uh, you know, research in the United States, in Europe, in Eastern Europe and in Africa. And, you know, it's, it was a lot. <laughs> so, um, and, the, and, and the basic argument that I make in the book is that not only is it really uh, important to recognize that these second world, third world, that's what the, the regions were called back uh, during the Cold War. The second world was the Eastern Bloc and the third world was the developing world of the global South. The second world, third world connections were very, very strong and that they, these women's organizations actually helped each other um, promote women's issues in their own countries. But I also argue in the book that not only did they help promote women's issues in the developing world and the second world, but they actually served as a catalyst to promote women's rights in the first world countries as well. And it's a little bit of a controversial argument. Um, but I think it's really important that one thing that we really haven't talked about is the role of superpower rivalry, Cold War rivalry, when it comes to women's rights. And that unfortunately, by the Fourth World uh, Conference in Beijing, Fourth World Conference of Women in Beijing in 1995, the role of the Eastern Bloc women and the important pressure that they had once put on the um, Western women, especially women from the United States, was gone. And it was sort of deliberately, I think, erased from the historical record. And I think that's really, really problematic because the way we remember the UN decade now is it's like this history of triumph of Western women, of American feminism, and that's not actually what it was at all. Yeah, this sounds like a really, really big journey. And I I can see, like, after reading your book, I can really understand this argument. And I feel that it is really well-documented 
uh, everything that you're doing there. Uh, but I wanted like to hear more about like the specific um, reasons why was it according to you erased uh, like in the context of the Cold War. Um, so I think there it was in the inter- introduction where you say there are like three reasons. You kind of like really nicely summarize them. So I wondered whether you could do this for us now as well. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think there are a couple of reasons. I mean, so the first reason is just a, a material culture reason, like in Bulgaria and in many of these East European countries, a lot of the women who were involved in the UN decade for women, you know, they became very poor and marginalized after 1989 or 1991. They were incredibly um, impoverished and so and th- and they didn't obviously have the ability to write memoirs or they didn't have journals where they could submit their you know their articles reflecting on the past. I mean a few of them did. Like Maria Dinkova wrote a series of articles that were really wonderful about the Bulgarian women's revolution she called it, but they were written in Bulgarian and they weren't translated and so people don't have access to them. So that's the first reason. Also, I think um I mentioned the fact that there's this incredible archival imbalance. So that Western women, American women in particular, are really good at preserving their papers. And before they retire, they actually, you know, contact universities or libraries or institutions that they're affiliated with, and they make sure that all of their papers are preserved. So many of the documents that I needed in order to do this research were literally fugitive papers. I was going through people's basements. I was going through people's photo albums. I was digging through people's, people's cupboards you know, there were all these documents that had been squirreled away here or there that weren't in the official record that was really difficult. So that's the first reason. Um, the second reason I also think is that there's an incredible hostility to feminism still in many East European countries. Uh, they, a lot of East European countries associate feminism with socialism, the state socialist past. And so there's a lot of negative attitudes towards these sort of red grandmothers, you know, um, and so there's very little, very little interest of, of, of anybody in that part of the world, I think, telling the story. There are very few young scholars. I mean, it's changing now. I think it's starting to change. But certainly when I started doing this research in 2010, people thought I was crazy to want to do research on this topic. Um, and then, you know, I also think that there's a certain global but certainly Western triumphalism around the end of the Cold War. And people don't want to admit that there was anything good about the communist past. And like, if you open that window even a little bit and you say, oh, but look at all these things that they were doing for women. Look at all the influence that they had at the UN. Look at all the influence that they had on the international stage. Look at all the influence that they had in the developing world with women in Africa, with women in Latin America or with women in Asia, people kind of freak out and they say, oh my God, you know, you're an apologist for Stalin. You want to go bring back the gulag. So it's very, very difficult to have a a reasoned conversation about this. And that's one of the reasons why this book took me so long to write, because I wanted to make sure that everything that I wrote was documented that it was, you know, from the archives or published somewhere. You know, when I heard people in my oral history interviews, when people told me stories, I did everything possible to try to corroborate those stories with the archival evidence from the time, because I knew that people were going to attack me um, for trying to say that there was this important, um, you know, this important influence of, of these Eastern Bloc women. And then finally, I think that the other thing is, is that, look, Western feminists, especially feminists, Western feminists of the second wave in this country, they want to claim that it was their grassroots activism that led to women's rights. They don't want to acknowledge that there was the international Cold War context. And I think that's why there's been a sort of concerted effort to sort of sweep under the rug this story of socialist women's activism and global solidarity during the Cold War. They don't want to admit it. They think that you know, there's this fantasy in the Eastern 
um, sorry, in, in Western feminism, that everything was done from the grassroots up, that it was all sort of local organizing. And what they, you know, and what I try to point out in the book, and I document this also very carefully, is all of the ways in which the American government, there were all these top think, top down things that were happening in the United States as well. And that in many ways, feminists in this country were able to make gains because of the Cold War context, because of the superpower rivalry around women's rights. And that story actually, I think, threatens a lot of women, especially women of a certain age in this country, who really think of themselves as like heroines of, you know, feminist, second wave feminism in this country. I was already thinking, I I had a question about this. The fact that Western feminists claimed that we are doing grassroots activism, whether they are um, like there in the East, let's say in the Eastern Bloc, uh, women are like influenced influenced by the state and everything that they're saying is actually propaganda. So do we make this really, uh, really interesting point of saying that actually, like it is, a, it is a very slightly thing throughout your book, but you actually say that um, when, when one looks at these conferences, one can see that um, what the delegates from the US did was also something like a propaganda, right? Of course. Yeah, <laughs> of course it was. I mean, Arvon Fraser, you know, who was a member of the U.S. delegation, she said people didn't speak at these conferences. Countries spoke at these conferences. So, of yes, course, I remember this quotation. Yes, yes. <laughs> the United States, you know, they had very strong positions about issues. Look, the United States delegation had to vote against the conference document in Copenhagen because there was language inserted in there that they disapproved of and that the Congress basically said, if, you know, if this language appears in the document, you cannot vote for it. So, and, you know, and the United States, you know, especially in 1975, the, the, the delegates, most of the women's delegates in, in Mexico City were very much opposed to the war in Vietnam, not surprisingly. And there had also been a U.S.-backed coup against Salvador Allende in Chile, and they in- installed Augusto Pinochet. So, of course, these women were incredibly constrained by the foreign policy of their government. They were acting as state agents as much as the women were from the Eastern Bloc. So I think, yeah, the, the problem with a lot of Western feminist discourse about the U.N. decade today is that, you know, they say, well, those women's organizations in the Eastern Bloc weren't really women's organizations because they were all employees of the state. And the truth of the matter is that uh, many of the women who were in the official delegation at Mexico City or Copenhagen or Nairobi were also members of the state. I mean, in Nairobi, the woman who headed the, the American delegation was Maureen Reagan, President Reagan's daughter. So... <laughs> Um, of course, there, there's politics involved. And, you know, also, if we look at the history of American feminism, as I mentioned in the book, you know, in 1961, when President John F. Kennedy creates the first commission on the status of women, you know, it's done explicitly for national security purposes. They are looking at women's rights, not for the sake of like making women happy, but because they're worried that the Soviet Union is winning the Cold War and especially the space race because they're able to use double the brain power than the United States. So, and, and if you look at the history of women's sports, for instance, in the United States with Title IX legislation, the only reason that Americans started putting money into women's sports was because every time, you know, uh, we went to the Olympics, the Eastern Bloc countries were wiping the floor with the United States in the medal count because they had all these women athletes who were competing in women's sports and the United States didn't have any. So suddenly all the men, you know, in Congress said, oh, we need to get some money into into women's sports. So I think that that part of the story is forgotten, right? I mean, it's very important to recognize that there was an incredible amount of grassroots activism in the United States, but it was done in the context of the Cold War. And to ignore the Cold War like you read these histories of American feminism 
And they just sort of ignore the role that the Cold War context was was playing. I think it's really important that we recognize that there was plenty of top-down stuff going on in the United States. And, and this is probably a little bit more controversial, I actually would argue that there was a little bit more bottom-up stuff happening in Eastern Europe than we give these countries credit for, especially, I would argue, in places like Bulgaria and Yugoslavia. Uh, to a lesser Could you extent. please elaborate yeah. on this? Sorry, sorry for interrupting. Yeah. Could you please elaborate? I just found it so interesting that I couldn't. Yeah, yeah, uh, no, yeah. exactly. So, I mean, so I just want to say, like, this is not true of all places, right? So the Soviet Union and a place like Czechoslovakia after 68 was much more um, contained in what it could do. But certainly in Poland and certainly in Bulgaria and certainly in um, uh, Yugoslavia, which was non-aligned. So it's a, it's a little bit of a, a different case. But in, in Poland, Jean Robinson de- basically has shown very clearly that the Polish women's organization was trying to protect abortion and trying to expand sex education. And it was really coming from the Women's Committee that these things were protected in Poland under communism. And of course, we know now that after communism, there are all these restrictions. In Bulgaria, It really was these women, there were some young journalists associated with Janata Dnes, and they were really excited in 1968 when Elena Lagodinova became the president of the Women's Committee. And Lagodinova comes to them and says, okay, we want to put together a really progressive program for women's rights. Uh, in Bulgaria. And we don't want to do what the Romanians did in 1966, which is outlaw abortion, but we have this falling birth rate. So what can we do to help raise the birth rate while maintaining women's labor force participation? And so Janata Ness goes out and does a survey of like 16,000 readers in Bulgaria. And all these women send in information about their lives and why they are or not, or are not. These are anonymous surveys. And, and the journalists of Janata Dnes basically read through the surveys and they start to think about what a program for women's rights would look like. They prepare a program. That program then gets presented to Elena Lagodinova. Lagodinova reads the program, discusses the program with various institutes and various experts. And then she personally, literally goes before the Politburo with a bunch of placards. I have pictures of these placards in the book. And she basically explains to them what they need to do in order to promote women's rights in Bulgaria so that women can more effectively combine work and family balance. And, you know, her the initial reaction of these men is it's too expensive. We don't want to do that. It's, you know, much easier to outlaw abortion like the Romanians did. And she argues with them and she says, look, if you don't want to do this, then send me back to the academy. She had come, she had been working before as a scientist at the Bulgarian Academy of Sciences. She's like, send me back to the academy. If you're not going to actually do this, if you want to fix this problem, we have to do it rationally on scientific basis. And I've done the research and I've put together a program and here it is. I need your approval. And the Politburo members disagreed. They argued. They were, you know, they were somewhere up in Lovich. And eventually, Zhivkov came around and he said, okay, we're going to do this. And then in 1972, the Politburo issues this decision, which is about enhancing the life of women under socialism. And it looks like it's a top-down decision from the Politburo, which basically gives women all these maternity leaves and has all these wonderful provisions for child allowances and the re-education of men and so on and so forth. But what you don't understand unless you dig into the archives and unless you talk to the women that were involved in this process is that Politburo decision actually comes more or less from three journalists in their late 20s, early 30s, reading a bunch of surveys that Bulgarian women sent into the Janata Ness. It was a kind of bottom-up process. It just doesn't look the way that we think of grassroots politics in the West with a bunch of women on the street with big signs marching in the streets, right? It's a different sort of a bottom-up process. And in Yugoslavia, I would say, where they had many more freedoms uh, than they did in places like Bulgaria or Poland, there was also a lot more sort of bottom-up, especially in the 80s feminism that we see. And I think that a lot of scholars in this, even in Romania, I have a colleague who's doing a very similar project in Romania. There was a lot more um, 
pushback against the government than we really realize because we have this totalitarian stereotype of these authoritarian regimes, which leads us to believe that everything was the state and that everybody who wasn't the state was just like an automaton, a mindless automaton doing what the state told them to do, except for the handful of dissidents who were, you know, trying to take it down. Like on this note, this, this was really interesting what you just thought about the grassroots activism in a country that you think that everything is happening only through the state. But on this note, I was thinking about um, the ideologically heavy language that women used back then when they kind of like presented their results or or in the conferences or in the UN conferences as well. Um, so I was just um, thinking about your argument that you say that it is actually not as much like only propaganda thing, but it is also a way to um, to make sure that their writings are are legitimate and like all the references to Zhivkov, to Marx, Engels, Lenin were actually meant to help them, like like a strategy was were meant to make writings actually to not be devalued, to not be discredited, uh, and to to make them to make to to be able to actually uh, legitimize their their critique against the state on certain issues. So I, I thought this is really interesting argument. Yeah. You know, so we, this is something that is amazing because, so, you know, remember this is Bulgarian communism. So there's censorship um, and there, and, but the censors are people most, you know, they're, they're people who have to read every article in Janata Dines before it goes to press. And the thing about it is that if you want to publish an article that is critical of government policy, uh, which Janata Dines does as early as 1968, uh, there's a, an article that's very critical of, of women's labor in the construction industry, for instance. And they have to be very careful because if they write something too critical, the article will be censored. If they want to talk about sexuality, which is something that they'd wanted to talk about, uh, you know, sexology, they had to be very careful because the censors were kind of prudish. So what they do very strategically is they use quotes from Lenin. They use quotes from uh, Gyorgy Dimitrov. They use quotes from Engels absolutely to justify and, and argue that what they're doing, the attention that they're paying to women's issues is truly socialist. It's truly, it's in the spirit of what the fathers of socialism expected them to be doing. And so when the men, like in the Politburo, or men who were censors, are basically saying, oh, this is bourgeois feminism, You're, this is just bourgeois propaganda, you can't write this, the women would say, no, it's not. Here's a quote from Lenin. Here's a quote from Dimitrov. Here's a quote from Engels that shows that the issues that we are concerned about are relevant. So on the one hand, it's a very strategic move for many of these women. They're, they understand how the system works. They write in euphemisms. Uh, Sonia Bakish, as I, I write in the book, who was the editor of Janata Dnes for many years, um, she was the wife of Zhivko Zhivkov, and she had a lot of influence and power. She was a partisan, and she really understood how to use euphemisms, how to get things, you know, to sneak things by the censors. Um, but I also think it's worth mentioning here that some of these women, especially um, the leaders, so Bakish and um, Elena Lagodinova and Maria Dinkova, they were also really, truly committed socialists. I think that there's, you know, a lot of people tend to think of communists as like these power hungry um, ideologues. And that some of them were quite duplicitous. And I think that's true. Many of the, especially late communist elites, were very duplicitous. They didn't really believe in it anymore. They were just out to enhance their own power. But there were some, and especially those who had fought in the Second World War, uh, especially the, among the uh, people who had been Pakistani, they were really wholeheartedly uh, uh, committed to this idea that the path forward for women's emancipation was through socialism. And so when they go to the UN and they're talking about, you know, the old, that, that, that the market, that capitalism will never solve women's problems, that it has to be done through some form of socialist state, through the socialization of housecare or the socialization, sorry, of housework or, or childcare, 
they really mean it. They're not just saying it because their government is telling them to. They really honestly believe that. And I think that, you know, when Western feminists said, oh, well, she's just talking about Marx or she's just talking about, you know, state ownership of or state child care because that's what her government is telling her to say at this big international forum, that really undermines the reality that many of these women actually thought that this was a much better pathway forward. And in some ways, they saw it in places like Scandinavia, in Sweden, or in Denmark, or in Finland. They were very inspired by the sort of social democracy model. Um, and I, th- I do think it's also really important to point out here that people like Sonia Bakish actually becomes a dissident, right? In the late communist period, she's part of Eko Glasnost, and she is expelled from the party for her activism. So many of these women really did have con- a conscience about their role as social activists. They considered themselves women's activists, but they also considered themselves socialists. Okay, this was really, really on what I was thinking. Like now I will be reading those women or other people who are writing and this time like with other eyes, I feel, because I always stumbled on these ideological references and I kind of like jumped Yeah, jumped over them and then said like, oh, this is all propaganda. How bad that these people were so mindless or whatever. Like I I always had this kind of like feeling towards such kind of texts. Now um, I feel a little bit different about it <laughs> after reading reading it. Yeah, you have, to, you have to read them really carefully. I mean, look, I write, I mean, we all, if, you know, if you're an academic, you write grants, right? And when you're writing grants or you're writing a book proposal, there's a formula. There's a way that you have to write. There's language that you have to use. If you're in anthropology and you're writing about biopolitics or whatever, there are certain kinds of people that you have to cite. You know, there's certain kinds of literatures that you have to be conversant in. It's no different at this period of time. It's just that they're the 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 languages that they were using was this really overfreighted bureaucratic ideological. I mean, it's kind of, it's, it's very off-putting. I understand it. It took me a really long time to get through it. It, it annoyed me a lot. Um, but the, the moment of truth really came for me when I was very fortunate in the summer of 2012, I went to the National Library and I sat down in the reading room with about 25 years of Janata Dnes with Maria Dinkova, who had been a member of the editorial committee, the, the editorial college, f- for most of those 20 years, between 1968 and 1988. And she sat with me, next to me, and we went through the magazines and she said, this article got censored. We had to change it this way. This article They were going to censor it, but we did this. You know, this article caused a big problem because of this, what, this, this, and this, right? So she was, she was able to show me as a journalist, right, as the person who was sitting in the committee, how they were using that language in order to kind of hoodwink the censors. Because if the first couple of paragraphs were this kind of high-minded ideological language around Marx and Engels and the great socialist future and how the Women's Committee was supporting the goals of the Bulgarian Communist Party and the 10th Congress, blah, 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 then the censor wouldn't read any further. And they could write whatever they wanted by paragraph four. So it was really important for them to be able to use that language strategically. And especially Bakish knew that. Bakish was very, very, very smart. And she gave her journalists a lot of leeway. You know, if you read some of those issues of Janata Dnes, they talk about issues of masculinity. They talk about issues of single motherhood. They talk about issues of, of sexology and uh, of, you know, of divorce, things that would n- normally not be comfortable to talk about, right? But they're doing it because the journalists are very sensitive to how to use this sort of language in order to maneuver through the system. And I did a lot, I, you know, I ended up doing 16 or 17 interviews with women who were either members of the Bulgarian Women's Committee or who were members of Janata Dnes in some capacity, either journalists or members of the editorial college, the editorial board. And all of them told me the same thing that yes, it was difficult. You always had to worry about censorship. We were being put through the ringer of communism, 
but they were all very, very savvy of how to negotiate the system. And so if they wanted to actually have a discussion, and, and it's important that Jeanette Dnes in particular was really good at this. People loved that magazine, right? People talk very fondly about being able to read these discussions and they had like letters to the editor, they had advice columns, they had all sorts of ways in which they were trying to create dialogue with ordinary people. The other thing that I think is really important is um, uh, Jalbi, they had um, complaints, right? So if you were an ordinary person and you had a problem, you wanted to get a divorce or you needed some, you wanted to change your job or you had a bad boss who was harassing you, you could write a letter to the Bulgarian Women's Committee. And the Bulgarian Women's Committee had a full section that dealt only with these complaint letters. And I think that's really interesting and important to know. There was, in fact, a kind of dialogue. Now, I'm not romanticizing it. There were still a lot of problems, obviously. Um, you know, there were many, many, many problems, restrict travel restrictions and all the consumer shortages. There were the secret police that were ubiquitous. There were the, you know, lots of issues around. uh, You couldn't actually be a true political dissident. But in terms of people's ordinary lives, like if I had a boss who was like grabbing my butt or whatever, and I was upset about it and I didn't want to work there anymore, I could actually, there was somebody who would listen to me. I wasn't completely helpless in the way that we imagine that people were completely helpless under communism. I feel that these two perspectives that you have, like the archives and talking to people, like in this um, person who actually showed you um, how to read old archives, this is a really good balance between facts, history, and then a more subjective source of information. So could you please talk really briefly about this and how you choose what to include, what to exclude, um, how to achieve this balance between raw facts, let's say, even though this is problematic maybe, (laughs) And um, and then like the subjective perspective, how, um, how did you manage around this? Yeah, I just think that's really, it's a hard balance. You know, I'm an ethnographer, not a historian. And so I wanted the book to have a very personal feel to it. I wanted the book to be about these women, right? Not only the Bulgarian women and the American women, but also the Zambian women that I interviewed. And so I was very careful to tell, to let them tell their stories at the beginning of each of these chapters. And in some cases, I could not corroborate what they said, you know, in the archives. So that's a that's a hard balance. You know, I, I wanted them to be able to speak for themselves and to speak for their experiences, but I also wanted to go to the archives and and to go to real publications and to find as much factual or archival evidence to support what they were saying. So I think the things that I cut out of the book, there were many things I could have written about. This book could have been like 700 pages if I'd let myself. Yeah, it, I had so, I have so much material. I have enough material for another book, actually. But the things that I ended up cutting were the places where people told me stories, and I could, and they were really either personal stories about experiences that they had, or there were sort of like, um, you know, there were re- reminiscences about a particular event that I could not substantiate with an archival document or a, a, a published source. Those were the things that I had to get rid of. There were, you know, there was, you know, I can, one or two examples where I really had to work hard. So in the Bulgarian case, Elena Lagodinova told me a story about the 1975 conference where the Chinese had tried to add some amendment that was going to make the Soviet Union look really bad. And the Soviet delegation did not have a member who was versed appropriately in UN procedure because they just didn't think this was a very important conference, but the Bulgarians had a UN specialist in their delegation. And so the Bulgarians actually helped the Soviets negotiate this like through back channels and like kind of funny rule bending, um, massaging UN rules in order to prevent the Chinese from making this amendment that was going to be critical of the Soviet Union. And so she had told me the story and I can't tell you, Marina, how long it took me to, to find the information, just, you know, days and days and days of reading, uh, UN transcripts of the proceedings of the 1975 meetings. 
it was so tedious. But eventually I found the Chinese amendment. And so once I was able to establish that the Chinese had actually tried to amend this resolution that was going to make um, you know, the Soviet Union look bad, then I was able to say, okay, this happened, but it didn't pass. And the story that I have for why it didn't pass is this. Now, I, don't, I can't substantiate the story because um, it's just hearsay. I mean, it's just somebody's remembrance of the events. But at least... I can say, okay, here's the amendment and it did, it was proposed and it didn't pass. (laughs) So, but that kind of work is really, really, really painstaking. I can imagine this. And I also felt so many times the word claims or claimed um, somewhere there, which kind of like accounted for all this difficult balance between someone is telling you something you want to believe, believe them. And then you want to also check your archives so yeah um i wanted us to go to to go back to the structure of the book itself because because it was i felt the way it was structured was also valuable with the first part giving more context and um the second part talking about the actual um conferences and what happened could you talk really briefly about the structure because i i have Maybe two more questions and we will need <laughs> Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, so that's an easy question. So basically the, the first part of the book is just the, the story of women's uh, rights in Bulgaria, in Zambia, and in the United States. So I go over the same history kind of three times in three different places. Uh, and then I, in the second part of the book, I basically dive into the UN. And there are these three characters, Bulgaria, Zambia, and the United States. And I show you how the, their different perspectives on what is happening during the UN Decade for Women between 1975 uh, and 1985 when the last conference in Nairobi is held. And then the kind of concluding chapter is sort of the aftermath of that. But yeah, the idea is that in order to understand the positions of the three different countries and the women of these three different countries in the second half of the book, you have to understand a little bit about the domestic context of their women's rights organizing within their own country. Yes, I felt this very as a very valuable, like the first part, it kind of like really opens your eyes to read the second part, which is so and more, how to say it, like if I had immediately the information from the second part, I would, I, it wouldn't be possible to even read it, right? But like when you have the all the information from the first part, this is really, really helpful. So. Um, whoever wants to read this shouldn't jump to the second part, <laughs> I feel. This is my personal advice. Yeah, yeah. The second part is, yeah, yeah, it's very, a lot of it is a very tedious uh, reading of the UN procedures, <laughs> right? And the way that the, way that the Cold War um, rivalry plays out within the very specific context of the UN, and you won't understand it unless you read the first part of the book. <laughs> Right, right. This is what I felt as well. Um, so about, the, you said, like the UN procedures. I was thinking about all the final documents that uh, came from the from these conferences. And just a quick question, because I couldn't imagine while reading the book, like how binding, binding are those documents? How, like, how much value do they have for the women's movement in the different countries that have taken part? Like, um what is the actual value of the conferences? Because there was so much like enthusiasm about these conferences. And then we had this conflict there of the uh, Eastern Bloc countries and the, let's say, the third world countries, even though this is not a really good um, concept. Um, And then the Western countries. Um, And then I was wondering so much preparations and then the conflict on these conferences and it was always almost the same conflict uh, with the eastern uh, bloc women saying that uh, we should look at women's issues in the context of uh, racism and then colonialism imperialism um, and so on and the western um, liberalist um, feminists, Western liberal, liberal feminists, sorry, um, 
wanting it to be just a conference for women's issues only. Um, so my question, I guess, is um, what are the outcomes of such a conference? First, the documents themselves, how binding are they? Are, were they? How influential were they? And then considering the conflict that was ongoing on these conferences, did they actually achieve what people hoped? Yeah, I think I know what you're saying. So I would say, first of all, the Convention for the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, which was ratified um, in, in 1980. And, you know, it is a binding document on the country's that have adopted and ratified it. Uh, the United States has not. And that's, that's how important that document is. It's, you know, many years, right, since it was passed. And I think the United States is one of seven countries in the whole world that has not ratified CEDAW uh, because they don't want, they can be hauled up in front of, you know, the International Court of Human Rights. Um, these documents at the UN level are quite binding. Uh, if if they're ratified by the countries, and so and you know and the program of action, the they had incredible influence within the countries because for the first time in a country like Zambia, so there really wasn't a women's committee in Zambia until 1975. It was in preparation for, and in the aftermath of the conference in Mexico City that the Women's League really starts doing research on ordinary women's lives. So there are all sorts of national machineries is what they were called, women's bureaus and women's desks in the Ministry of um, uh, Social Welfare, for instance, where people actually start paying attention. You know, a very small thing like gender disaggregated statistics, the UN didn't disaggregate statistics by gender until the UN conferences for women. Like there was a sea change in the way that people actually thought about social problems by paying attention to the specific needs of women. And I think that one of the things that I argue, but I, I also very much take this from Devaki Jane's book, which is a 2005 book, An Intellectual History of Women at the United Nations, is that since the Cold War ended, women's rights have actually gotten worse internationally. And part of the reason that she argues, and I agree with her, is that there's no more rivalry between East and West. Those socialist women from the Eastern Bloc aren't up there saying that countries have a responsibility to look after the social needs of their populations and particularly their women. The whole idea of social rights, have, uh, social and economic rights are gone. I mean, all that we talk about in the United States, all we care about are quote unquote human rights, which are political rights, freedom of speech, you know, freedom of conscience, freedom of the press and so on. But nobody talks about you know, freedom to have a, a job, you know, the right to employment or the right to housing. I mean, only now in the United States do we have people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez talking about housing as a human right or healthcare as a human right. That language comes directly from the Cold War. That's exactly what those Eastern Bloc countries were arguing. And I think as long as that language was in the international sphere, Western countries, but particularly Western employers, I would say, uh, fearing the spread of socialism or the influence of socialist ideas, they kind of had an incentive to treat their workers and their women a little bit better. This is not only my research, by the way. There's Mary Dudziak has a wonderful book called Cold War Civil Rights. Uh, a colleague of mine, Sandrine Cott, writes about the Cold War rivalry at the International Labor Organization. So I think there's a lot of evidence that social rights, just generally speaking, not just women's rights, but civil rights and labor rights, were incredibly positively impacted by this Cold War superpower rivalry. So I think it's really important and that we're still living the legacies of that today. Uh, so um, I was wondering about like the conclusion of your book. So it was really an emotional one. Um, so I wanted, you, <laughs> I wanted you to comment a little bit on this position of the women's activists in both in Africa and in, um, in Bulgaria. Uh, not in Africa, but in Zambia, you're writing specifically about Zambia uh, and in Bulgaria after the end of the Cold War. So um, I felt that there were like in different positions, like um, from the stories that you presented. Um, I'm not really sure how her name is actually pronounced. Anna Durceva. Uh, yes, Durceva. 
Anna Durceva's story is, is compared to um, Kankasa's story. It's um, kind of like triggering, triggering um, some thoughts. Like it's really, um, I wanted you to talk about this basically. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, one of the hardest things about doing this kind of research for as long as I did is that I really got to know these women really well. Um, because I would see them, you know, every year, at least once, if not twice. Uh, and I interviewed them in their homes and I, yeah, it, it was hard for me, I will say, because unfortunately so many of the women that I've interviewed have passed away, uh, since the, before the book came out. Um, but yeah, I think that for the Zambian women, the transition was difficult, but many of them have managed to get on their feet again, partially because of family networks um, and partially because they were able to sort of reinvent themselves in as, you know, women's rights activists in a different way uh, and able to apply for funding from the West. Whereas in Bulgaria and in, you know, some of the other countries where I talked to or heard about women who had been active in these women's organizations, their lives were really, really harmed profoundly by the collapse of communism and everything that they worked for, everything that they struggled for, they, they really never got any credit for it. And I think it's, it's, it breaks my heart that, um, that so much was done for women. I I can remember actually being with my Bulgarian sister-in-law and telling her, about this 1972 Politburo decision and the maternity leave provisions. And my sister-in-law had both of her children before 89. And so she had taken maternity leave under this law. And I asked her, you know, did she know who was responsible for that law, for, you know, the maternity leave that you were able to take? And she had no idea. And when I told her, like, okay, these are the names of the women who came up with that plan, she was pretty surprised, right? And I think, you know, there are a lot of uh, legacies of these policies that a lot of women still enjoy today, but they have no idea the struggles that went on behind the scenes. And part of that is because these stories have not been told. Now, I think that there's always unsung heroes of any social movement. But for me, as, you know, as somebody who also considers herself to a certain extent as an activist, there are moments <laughs> when I think about people who dedicated their lives to a certain cause, whether it's you know overthrowing apartheid in South Africa or women's rights in the Eastern Bloc countries or in the United States or civil rights more broadly, and the fact that you know certain people get credit, usually men, always almost always men who get credit for things, um, and there are a lot of stories of of people who worked behind the scenes that aren't given as much attention, and I think that. You know, if you're going to be a scholar and you're going to work on a topic, um, you know, there there are a lot of reasons to write. Uh, the, you know, there's pro- professional credentials and things like that. And sometimes you have to get your book out for the tenure track or whatever. But it, as you progress in your scholarly career, I think that there's, you know, there's a certain, as an anthropologist and as an ethnographer, I really feel like there's a certain duty that you have to your informants to tell their stories as honestly as you can. And sometimes that's really difficult and it's hard, but sometimes it's really important to do so. Even recognizing the subjectivity of those stories, it's important to get those stories out there because there are so many stories that never get told. And there are so many heroes in everyday life, so many people who achieve so much that we'll never really be able to appreciate. And I think that one of the beautiful things about doing the ethnographic work and the historical work that I can do is the ability to tell those stories. I think this is what has drawn me personally to anthropology as well. Um, so a very last note. I really cannot omit this. Sorry. Uh, it is um, that the book has so many photographs and I really wanted to mention this. Um, that Because this is kind of like important for me to have the visual representation of uh, people that I'm reading about. And I really wanted kind of like even thank you for including all those photographs um, because I feel that otherwise they would be like not really easy to find. So if you can just briefly talk about including photographs, your vision about this um, in such books, um, including photographs in such books. And also if you have a personal attachment to um, any, uh, to, 
to some of the photos or one of the photos that is really important for you? Yeah, sure. So yeah, I mean, first of all, I think that when you're doing oral history interviews with people, the most important thing you can do is ask them to see your photos, to see their photos. Um, because, uh, you know, uh, Olga Shevchenko, my colleague over at Williams, uh, has done a wonderful um, book about photographs in the former Soviet Union and the importance and the powerful narratives that we can elicit from people when they're looking at pictures of themselves when they were younger. And so I, um, I really think that including photographs, especially if the photographs are identified as important to your informants, right? To the women, and in this case, the women that I was interviewed, they would say, oh, this is my favorite picture and here's why. Um, or if there's a particular photograph that tells a particular story, you know, so like I, I talk about when Kankasa sees herself in a photo from 1975, and she was so moved. I was, you know, visiting her in, in, in January, 2012 to see herself in this photo. She almost started crying, right? It, I knew I had to include that photo. But, um, and so I think that that when you're doing ethnographic or historical work, it's really important to use photographs and especially the photographs that are very important to your informants. Allow them to tell you which photographs they like and why. But for me personally, the, the photograph that I am probably most attached to is on page 223, which is in the conclusion. And it's a photograph of me and with Anna Dersheva and Elena Legadinova, both of them who have now passed away. And, um, it was just a really kind of a lovely day. And we were up in the mountains, uh, in Bakia outside of Sofia. And it was just a really kind of tender moment. We were, we found these puppies and we were just sort of talking about dogs and puppies and remembering. And, uh, you know, I, Tertipa wasn't alive for much longer after that. And Lagadinova passed away just three years later. So for me, it's a particularly moving photo because I just remember these two incredible women that I knew I had the pleasure of knowing um, that are no longer with us. And at least the, the one thing, as I said, the conclusion is a little bit more subjective. It's a little bit more political, I think. And it's partially because I was so, as I was moving through it, you know, at a certain point when Lagadinova died, I had to go through the version of the book that I was working on and change all of the verbs to the past tense from the present tense. And that was a really painful thing to have to do. But, you know, these are the, these are the things that happen. And so the photos in the book are, I think, just great. They add a lot because you can see the camaraderie and the joy and the solidarity that many of these women felt with each other, but also you can see that they had lives. They were ordinary women and they were doing important things and they were living. And we should remember that even though Zambia was a socialist country um, in, the, in the developing world and, and Bulgaria was a communist country in the Eastern Bloc, there were also real people who lived there who had real dreams and real thoughts and, and passions and activities and goals that they wanted to achieve. And they didn't always achieve them. And they had faced a lot of incredible constraints, but those lives are still there and we should try our best to kind of excavate them and remember them as much as we can. I absolutely agree here. I also feel that it could be like a separate project with just, not just photos, but maybe like more subjective project with a lot of photos and I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, what are you currently working on? So I'm actually doing a kind of very, very academic, much more academic project with my colleague, Mitchell Orenstein at the University of Pennsylvania, who is a political scientist. And we are writing a book called tentatively the social impacts of transition. And we are doing a massive data um, analysis and we're looking at economic data, demographic data, public opinion data and ethnographic data. And we're writing a sort of synthetic book that really looks at, uh, tried, tries to measure the last 30 years of the economic transition in Eastern Europe and whether or not it was successful. Because I think there's a lot of uh, arguments on both sides. Uh, when Mitchell and I started the project, I think he thought it was a lot better than it was. I thought it was a lot worse than it was than he did. Um, and when we actually looked at the data, I think we were both surprised that depending on where you are and who you are, it's probably worse than either of us thought. 
So, um, so we're trying to kind of craft a narrative for all of the data. It's, it's, it's been a really interesting project for me because I'm working with somebody who's very quantitative and I'm a very qualitative person. But I think bringing those mm-hmm. two perspectives together, the qualitative and the quantitative, are really important when we're looking at the last 30 years of transition in the former socialist world. So that's what I'm currently thinking about now. I'm also doing a um, kind of an odd thing. I'm doing a podcast on Alexandra Kolontai, um, which I, I, I've never done anything like that before. But I'm having a lot of fun basically going back and reading the original works, selections from the original works of Alexandra Kolontai from the late 19th and early 20th century and talking about them and trying to make sense of how we can read and understand Alexandra Kolontai for the 21st century. So that's also been a kind of a, a side project, but I'm having a lot of fun with it. And I've had some great guests and I've been able to sort of, you know, talk to graduate students and talk to people about like how Kolontai is relevant in their work. So that's also been a kind of interesting, very different project, very theoretical so I'm doing a very practical thing in terms of looking at data. And then I'm doing a very theoretical thing in terms of thinking and reading about Alexander Kolontai and socialist feminism more broadly. This sounds like really interesting project. Like um, um, I, I really am looking forward to reading the book on transition because for me, this is also like a question, like where are we like this long, long process? Like I'm, I'm a, I'm a child of transition, basically. Like I'm from Bulgaria, and I'm I'm born in the transition period. So it is for me like, and it would be an important, personally important book to just see, like the time that I'm in, like the process that has been while I'll be growing up, like what's what has happened, and yeah, yeah, yeah. And Bulgaria is actually a really bleak story, <laughs> which I'm sure you know, yeah. but. When we look at the data, especially the demographic data, um, it's a it's an off it's really hard to to look at this data and and you know see what's going on. You know the different narratives. So yeah, it, it, you know hopefully the book will. We have a sort of a rough draft of it. We're working on it over the summer, but it will be. I think it's really important for us. It's been thirty years now, right, since the transition. I, it started at the fall of the wall in eighty nine, and I think that it's really important to go back and take stock. Because I don't think we've done that. There's been this narrative that the Cold War was over, the West won, everything was great, democracy came, yay, everybody joined the EU, everybody's a member of NATO, this is wonderful. Um, but when we actually look at the data, a lot of people, uh, many more people than you would imagine, Marina, actually have a worse standard of living in 2019 than they did before 1989. And I don't think a lot of economists would like to admit that, but the data tells the story. So. Okay, so I'm really looking forward to this, uh, to reading this book. And thank you so much for being uh, on on our channel. And I hope to talk to you again for the other book. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much.